Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. In this episode, Aaron and Trishal discuss inflation. They go through factors that led to rising prices in 2021, and they relate potential impacts to consider. Our hosts then explore how stocks and bonds have performed over historical inflationary periods. You probably don't want to make any tactical changes to your portfolio to counteract recent inflation. So listen to the end to find out why. And now on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trishal Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hey, Aaron. Great to be here today, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. So we saw news that inflation reached a multi-decade high of 7% in 2021. And we've been getting a few questions from clients about this. It's in the news. This happens. Like, Should we be doing anything in response to inflation? So Trisha, I wanted to take the time today to explain the conversations we have with clients. What are some of the impacts of inflation? What are some things that actually kind of matter or relevant if you're trying to read the news? But like many of our conversations, we're going to spend about an hour talking, explaining, and coming to the conclusion that we're not actually going to do anything in response to inflation. Uh, If we have a good plan in place in advance, this is not one of those times to make any reactionary changes, but we want to take the time to actually explain why. So Trisha, why don't you start us off, kind of give us the quick primer on inflation, the why is it higher in 2021? I mean, that's a harder thing to guess, but what are some of the initial things that you think about or when you're doing research into inflation? Right. So when it comes to many of these economic variables, it's always good to look at them in the context of the longer history. So with inflation in particular, it's been on a trend of A, being positive, but typically for the last 40 years or so, it's averaged between like 2 to 3%. And the, the big headline for last year is, yeah, we, we hit 7%. And you know, according to the, the government CPI website, the last time we were uh, above that from a December to December period was in 1981. So yeah, that's over 40 years. Uh, that's a full generation. So it's certainly noteworthy. It's definitely something that has caused a lot of stir. And I, I think it's warranted to just have a conversation because this is different than a lot of us have experienced in our um, adult lives, I can say, and pro- potentially our entire lives. Yeah, that, that's one thing I, I remember uh, doing a lot of the studying coming out of college in 2005, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh looking at rates of mortgages and CDs and money markets, especially like compared to t- and 10 year treasury rates. And like since about 2008, 2009, it's everything's been super, super low rates. And that that's again, again, been my experience through most of our working career, most of my working career. And I, I have done the academic research about historical inflation, but I didn't actually live through it. So that's kind of what I'm looking to get your perspective on. Not not as someone who's lived through it, but as someone who's doing more research to get, and can give me more context. Right. So it's been the goal of 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 our government's policy to control inflation. So this is particularly the goal of the Fed and monetary policy to control the the amount of growth the, the amount of inflation that we see year over year and for the last 40 or so years it's, it's been pretty much tightly controlled from that perspective the notion is if inflation rates get too high then controls will be in place to slow down the economy and inflation rates or if the economy gets overheated 
then other controls can be put into place to kind of put the brakes on growth. And then interest rates can be lowered to stimulate the economy to help boost things up again. So there's been this kind of back and forth over the last 40 or so years. And it it seems like inflation in itself has been far better controlled over that period than the previous period. For example, as we had noted, inflation did get was much higher in uh, the early 80s and the late 70s, where we saw rates of uh, 8% a year, 12% a year in 1974. I think maybe the peak was like 13% a year in 79. And, you know, you had a bunch of these years back to back, and that is pretty significant. A, you know, something we mentioned before, like a 2% inflation rate means that money loses half of its value in about 35 years, like about a generation. And that's kind mm-hmm. of what we've what we've seen perhaps over the last 35 to 40 years. However, like a 7% rate, will money will lose half its value in 10 years. You know, that, that rule of um, 72 where we said, um, you know, 7% growth in the market will double its value. Well, it works this way as well, meaning a 7% depreciation in value over 10 years means $100 today will be worth $50 in buying power 10 years from now. And that can add up pretty quickly. So that's why I can imagine a, a lot of people may be concerned, especially if they're not in a position to... Um, tackle inflation sensibly, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means in a bit. But you know that that's kind of the quick and dirty of of the concerns and the longer history that we've noticed. So, I think for today's conversation, I want to come up with like something that costs a hundred dollars now that if we had seven percent inflation every year uh, would cost two hundred dollars uh, ten years from now. Um, mm-hmm. but it's also like, I guess I said, when you say like the, uh, your dollar's worth half 10 years from now, I feel like that's one of those, those academic truisms that doesn't actually relate to real life or provide any context. It's more like if you get cost of living adjustments with your income, uh, if you make a hundred thousand dollars, your income keep pace with inflation because it usually does and that's a probably a different conversation for that we've had in the past and or moving forward but let's assume it your income keeps pace with inflation your cost of living doubles but your income's also doubles so like that's one of the things those things of trying to provide context of if you make a hundred thousand dollars 10 years from now, you'll make $200,000. But if your rent was $3,000 a month, it's now going to be $6,000 a month. Something like that. Where like all the relative numbers within your lifestyle are the same, uh, but everything's just, the numbers are bigger. Yeah, so when inflation is moderate and controlled, then things should kind of balance out in the way that you suggest. For example, prices will rise, but income will go up and you should be kind of where you start. In theory, right, there's a lot of caveats to that. One thing that people kind of monitor is the Big Mac index. So that that may be a little more tangible to some of us. Yes, that's a good example. Okay, go go and explain that. Okay, so the the notion of the Big Mac index is how much is the price of a Big Mac year over year, and how does that change? And the helpful part about this particular index is it helps normalize prices around the planet because everybody knows typically what a Big Mac is, but then you can compare, okay, how much is a Big Mac in this country versus another country to give you an idea of purchasing power across different locations. So if you just look at the United States, the cost of a Big Mac, for example, in the 80s, this chart I'm looking at only goes back to 86, but it was $1.60. And the cost of a Big Mac um, a generation or so later is about $3.82. So a little more than double, but it's 35 years, right? This chart goes to 2015. So, you know, there you kind of have it, right? This small, you can buy the same item 35 years later, but you'll have to pay about twice as much. Yes, yes, but 
again, and I, I do like the Big Mac Index of comparing costs around the world, and that's probably that's a good number for us today. But it's also like you, your income is more. That's but so again, like maybe explain where theory doesn't quite hold up, or uh, either using Big Mac Index as a context, but if my income. Would like what are a situation where my income wouldn't keep pace with being able to buy a Big Mac? Well, yeah, the, there's a lot of nuances to all of this. For example, if things rise higher than CPI or this two percent average, then it's going to start cutting into income, and that's something we've talked about many times in the past. But the notion is, for example, certain components of expenditures have been growing far higher than the average inflation rate over the last generation. The, Housing, the top, college, healthcare, does that sound right? Yeah, so the, those are the top. So housing, um, basically education, and healthcare are the big three where those costs used to represent, let's say, 30% of a household income a generation ago in the 80s. Now you need to spend close to 60% for that okay. same household to afford those things. It's going to be 30% just for the housing before you count healthcare and education. Right. Yeah. And again, th these are inflation adjusted numbers that we're talking about, right? We're talking about a percent of income. And then the scary part there is if that same trend continues for the next generation, it's quite impossible to spend 120% of your income on yeah. just these three things. So that cannot continue. Something has to happen. Wages maybe need to grow up. One thing to also realize is the median wage over the last generation is slightly lower after you account for inflation. So even though wages should have doubled to just to keep pace in terms of buying power, they're actually on the median case slightly lower, meaning um, the same household is earning less now after you factor in inflation than they did a generation ago. And that trend gets much worse as your income goes lower. And that trend actually gets far beneficial the, the higher your income is. So those in the top 1% of earners are earning far more than the top 1% of earners earned a generation ago. And the, and the top 0.1% of earners are even far better than that and so on. So uh, I guess from that perspective, inflation... Inflation is a concern if it is if your if it's a realistic risk that your income doesn't also increase with inflation. Yeah, that that it's a concern from two perspectives, and what you just said is the first big one. The first big one is yeah, if your income isn't rising to the level of inflation, then you're actually losing or earning less. For example, last year, if you didn't get at least a 7% pay raise, you got a pay deduction in real terms. Okay. And what's the other one? So th the other one is your investments. So if your investments didn't grow by 7% last year, well, then your investments lost money, even though you don't see a negative sign on your balance sheet or your income statement. Okay. So the concern there is if your investments aren't keeping up with inflation or exceeding it, over time, you can erode the, the amount of buying power that your investments have, which frankly goes against what investments are supposed to do. Yes, yes. Okay. So uh, do you happen to know, I'm pulling up, but, but do you happen to know the um, S&P 500 over 2021? It was in the high 20s, I'd say ballpark 28%. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Okay. Uh, so it might, it might be like you think you got 28%, but you really only got 21% in a right. real adjusted return. And that'd be, I guess, I think that's one of the things that also comes up with context is a lot of the research and planning on investments uh, tries to look at real returns where we actually tr are trying to do this incorporate it where if we think stocks have a historical average a nominal average of 10 percent per year 
we try to make sure, okay, if, but if inflation has averaged 3%, they have a real return of 7%. So that might be an expectation moving forward. And so that's why a 7% rate of return with a with no one, oh, it's an 8% rate of return with a 1% inflation isn't really bad or below average. That's actually still in line with expectations. Um, but a 15, let's say if it was a 15% rate of return with a 7% inflation, that uh, let's bring it down to 14% rate of return with a 7% inflation, that brings us right back down to average. So, like, I think that's one of those key distinctions is those nominal numbers can sometimes look big or below average, but like we have to try and look at the real return as well. So if we got a nominal return of 28%, then, but inflation was seven, we probably got a real 21% return. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that, that's a good point to make. So the notion is if you're looking at return data across different time periods, you need to adjust for inflation because a 20% return this year means something far different than a 20% return a couple of years ago when inflation was 3%. Yeah. yeah. So, so definitely important to normalize that data. And that way you can make a more accurate comparison of what was the actual inflation adjusted growth for a given time period. Okay. So uh, after we kind of look at the if your income is not increasing inflation, that's concern, and your investments, uh, what is so, something else that you think of or talk to clients about when it comes to inflation? Well, you know, I, I think part of it is trying to just make sense of what's going on with, with the current inflationary environment. It's certainly a exceptional situation, you know, what, what we've seen last year for many reasons. And it's probably good to put it into context of, you know, why we're seeing the inflation that we're seeing. And that might provide some insight on, is it likely to be transitory? Or is there a structural change in how things operate that's likely to persist? You know, just to give some insight on how did we get to where we are today? And I think there are some tea leaves that we can look at to just give some insight on what happened over the past year that led to the situation of prices going up so dramatically. I think a good part of what people have maybe seen in the headlines is there's been, you know, frankly, just a good amount of disruption in the economy. I think people have heard about supply chains kind of breaking down or issues with manufacturers getting parts and then parts making it into um, the market and whatnot. Aaron, have you heard about like the automobiles and some people end up paying more than MSRP price these days to get their, their new car? Uh, I have heard that. I also have a couple of clients that have been looking at cars and they were looking at used cars, but used car prices were sometimes getting higher than new car prices, or at least there was, there's no longer any depreciation factor um that part of like like you said supply chain issues uh i know someone who's been trying to buy a new car and just there are no new cars um and so if a new car comes on the lot there's enough there's multiple buyers for the same single car and allows them to go above msrp and some of that's also affecting um, used cars as well. So I've had, cl- I have not experienced it personally, but I've had multiple clients tell me these stories of trying to look at cars. Yeah. So essentially, what happened is heading into the pandemic, a lot of businesses kind of hit the brakes on production, saying, "Oh no, we, we if we produce way too much, we're going to be in big trouble here. We're going to be stuffed with all this inventory, no buyers, because there, there's going to be calamity." And we did notice, for example, GDP growth went went dropping downwards into the pandemic. And what that means is we saw basically a large drop off in, you know, towards the end of 19 into 20. But then we saw an immediate or very stark reversal, meaning everything just kind of very quickly picked up again. And all of a sudden, People wanted to buy tons more very quickly, but that um, the goods weren't there. A good part of that was uh, the stimulus packages, the the checks that everybody received. 
mm-hmm. over the past year or two. And all of a sudden, people are ready to make all these purchases that they held off on, for example, for the last year or so, or the, you know, the two years preceding. But, you know, they still wanted their goods. But now the companies were anticipating that quick reversal, so they didn't have the, the product to sell. And then you see this dislocation. So, you know, previously we, we had this kind of well-oiled machine where, you know, just-in-time processing, right? Just, yeah. just put enough on the shelves to meet the, the, the demand that people want and, you know, no more nor less, right? You don't, and have it, for, don't have to pay for big warehouses and uh, kind exactly. of can save some business costs. Yeah. yeah. And the the idea there is companies focus on really forecasting exactly how much to produce and just producing just a tiny little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. And it works when it works, right? Because <laughs> you don't have oversupply and you meet the demands that, that the consumers want and everything works as it should. However, you throw a big wrench in the system, you know, called COVID, and it just gets all tumbled up in the gears and things start going awry. For, for example, I, I remember reading that uh, part of the car shortage is tied back to the microchip shortage. Yeah. A- and the notion there is there are literally parking lots full of cars ready to go, except they're missing a microchip. I, I'm glad you brought this in because I, I was thinking about, like, again, I've mentioned inflation. First thought, it's like, well, it's because government printed a few trillion dollars. Uh, and we like, I remember having a conversation with my father-in-law two years ago. I was like, yes, this helps now. This is going to lead to something later on. We didn't know what that was. It was like, and that, that makes a lot of sense. But your point of like the supply chain of, of kind of reducing manufacturing at the beginning because they're worried about lowering demand, then like, I almost kind of wonder if, the government hadn't printed money, would demand have low? Like, would that, it, it feels like a weird, like, counterfactual of it. It's hard for people to pay their rent if they can't go to work. So, from that perspective, pay, like, sending money and, and those stimulus really did help. But at the same time, like, I wonder if this could have been better signaling or could have been done sooner, but the private businesses were reducing production. And so, like you said, it was this kind of interesting dynamic of three variables that lead us, three variables started two years ago that lead us to where we are today. Yeah. You, you know, it's one of those things where hindsight is twenty twenty. Of of course, right? Yeah, I think leading into this, a lot of the chatter that I heard is that the government was trying not to make some of the mistakes or um, the misgivings of the 2008 crash. Yeah. And, and the idea there is the government did also try to spend and stimulate around that time. But um, post analysis showed that if they had done more, the great fallout wouldn't have been as great. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It's hard to get this perfect, right? But, you know, the uh, the alternate parallel reality that maybe exists somewhere, but not here, is that the government, you know, followed similar steps and did not spend as much. And then we might be in a, a worse position than we are today. That's, that's a good point. Like, would you rather see a negative 40% in the stock market and your home values uh, crashing or deal like, or deal with inflation now. Like, like if we had to like super summarize the last two big issues, like the, some of the choices, at least you understand how difficult those choices are. Like mm-hmm. you said, it's a double-edged sword. Like there, it's almost impossible to get it right. And we're trying to decide which of these bad outcomes is less worse and helps more people something along those lines yeah and you know it's hard to underplay the disruption that the financial crisis had it it was it took a long recovery to to step back you know and understand that 
um, how much devastation it caused with unemployment, with housing prices, of course, the market. But, you know, it took many years to get, build back up from that. And it's one of those things where, okay, here we are now. We, we did have the 7% inflation, but unemployment, frankly, is still pretty low. The supply chain kinks, maybe they aren't structural. Maybe they will work their way through and, you know, we'll be back to our just-in-time selves. And yeah, the, the market itself has shown its resilience through this. You know, maybe there are some cracks here and there that we've seen earlier this year, but it's hard to say that those are, you know, the, the dam about to break or, you know, just disruptions that we should expect from market conditions from time to time. Gut feeling if you were in charge would would you have done the same thing? Pretty close. Pretty close, I, I'd say. Um, I, I shouldn't be in charge. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll add that. Okay. Uh, moving on. What, what are some of the things that you that come up in client conversations about inflation? Either... Any other kind of historical context, uh, kind of how we got here, if you want to add to that, or is it starting to look at, okay, I understand, client has an understanding at the macro level, what do we start looking at at their individual level? Well, it, it's interesting because I, I actually ended up getting a lot more concerned from prospects than clients. And Interesting. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the notion here is I, I had a lot of people reach out who were sitting on, you know, maybe too much cash or weren't allocated as best as they would have liked and maybe didn't participate as much in, you know, the markets last year, which were phenomenal. Right. Yeah. But if you miss that boat, yeah, that, that 7% hurts. Yeah. That, that real return of 21%, 20%, uh, it's still really good. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's still probably what second standard deviation above the average. Yeah, right. Yeah. So if you look back like the last 50 years, the real return is about 9%. Okay. But if you look back, um, I, I've looked at data going back like 150 years and the real return is closer to like six and a half to 7%. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, so... Even with the 7% inflation, if you were invested, you're doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, maybe it's about time to mention this, that yes, if if we haven't been too clear, one of the best ways to protect against inflation is to invest in stocks. And typically, stocks over long periods have outperformed inflation by a good amount to the, to the point where it's sensible to stay invested in stocks over inflationary periods and non-inflationary periods. You know, the, the high-level notion is when inflation is metered and um, predictable, then stocks do just okay. Because again, this kind of like just-in-time environment that we talked about, it, it works well. Companies yep. can predict prices, they can set prices, and consumers can anticipate prices, and everybody kind of knows what they're getting, right? There, there's no... Um, major surprises. But um, over those periods, then stocks do tend to nicely outperform. But then even if you include the periods that we experienced last year, or even the disruptions that we talked about in the 70s and 80, early 80s, stocks still over time do better than um, those inflation returns. And, you know, the high level notion is over market cycles. Yes, um, the value of money will go down or prices will increase. But if you're a company and you can anticipate this well, the idea is, okay, your costs for goods go up. You got to pay for, for more for them. However, you can charge more for the products that you create. So it yeah. kind of flows through. And therefore, it's not that big of a deal if it's um, handled appropriately. However, yes, when inflation does spike, right, when it's unanticipated inflation, like we saw last year, that can cause disruptions. 
because again, when things aren't anticipated, it gets th- things get wonky, right? It, it's hard to deal with uncertainty. And typically, yes, when inflation spikes, you do see more volatility in the markets, meaning the movement of stock prices tend to be more jittery. But you know, that's because, again, there's a the uncertainty knob has increased, right? It's been t- turned up a bit because anticipation of prices is more challenging now. And it also leads to certain constraints that are hard to deal with and need to kind of readjust. So that that's something to realize. But again, the, the key takeaway is over market cycle stocks do a good job of protecting uh, or preserving and um, doing better to preserve purchasing power erosion. And that's, that's one of the, the key pieces of advice I provide also that, like I said, stocks do a great job outpacing inflation, both historical data and theory of the companies can raise their prices in response to inflation, both as their costs increase and they raise their prices, their revenues will increase. So even if their profit margins stayed the same, they will still see that nominal growth in revenues and profits. And so like it's easy to see how a company can keep pace with inflation. And then if there's any growth on top of that, you can outpace inflation. So all of the other economic factors that result from increased inflation can allow a company to, again, maintain profit margins. Even as their costs increase, they can raise their prices so the revenues increase. So it's all kind of moving lockstep together. And that's how a company can at least keep pace with inflation. And then again, apply some growth on top of that. So if I have clients, especially if they're younger than 50, I say, your 401ks and your investments are already 100% stocks between US and international stocks. We're already kind of in the best like hedge against inflation that we could be in. So we're already prepared for these types of environments. We'll make sure that you get raises through work. And it's like, okay, inflation was 7%. You got to get at least a 7% raise just to keep pace. So like having those conversations and that might be one of those differences between clients and prospective clients that you're mentioning that I think so much of dealing with inflation is like, did you have a plan or strategy in place in advance? And if you did, there's nothing really to do. So again, I, I completely agree. Stocks outpace inflation. That's probably the single best way to either it's almost taking advantage of it in a weird way, but uh, to at least not be concerned about it, that your stock portfolio, diversified S&P 500, is going to do just fine if inflation is higher than average or higher than 3% over multiple years. So that that's big thing number one. Worry about inflation, just have it be invested in stocks. <laughs> Yeah. And I'd say even if you're not as an aggressive investor as, you know, maybe some of the younger folks or the folks that are are more comfortable with the risk, even if you're in a phase of life where you may be on the decumulation phase, meaning you're retired or semi-retired and you're pulling money out of your, your war chest, it still may make sense to have some position in stocks for the purpose of keeping up with inflation you know not the whole pie but a percentage of the pie may still be sensible even in those situations and this is why you see most uh kind of life cycle funds or target date funds or income strategy funds are actually pretty close to half stock half bond uh, a little more on the aggressive side might be like a 60 40 60 percent stocks 40 percent bonds on the really conservative side might be 40 percent stocks 60 percent bonds but that's still the kind of best academic research of the way to generate withdrawals to support lifestyle over a 30 plus year period is to have probably at least 40% stocks in the portfolio. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that that's your inflation hedge over your market cycle and it's, it's there to provide a, a good buffer against these types of concerns, these types of erosion. You know, Frank, it's worth mentioning, you know, the role of bonds in all of this because bonds are there and they do have 
benefit to talk about. So that that's also something to keep in mind. Uh, so I always discuss bonds as more of the downside protection. We're, we're looking to mute the volatility of the stock stocks that you have. Uh, we're looking to get some return, but again, probably because I've been mostly working with clients in a relatively low inflation period over the last decade, interest rates have also been low. And so bond returns have been low and that's just kind of setting expectations. I, I'm not expecting to do better than uh, say 5%. Like that might mean that the bonds are too risky. So I do know long-term again, same academic research. When we look at real returns of stocks, we're trying to look at real returns of bonds and we would expect them to outperform inflation by one to 3% depending on the risk level of the bond. But I also am aware that during the inflationary periods, bonds can be hurt because of the nature of receiving a fixed income. The, if the bond was yielding a 3% coupon, that 3% coupon doesn't change because that's, the, that's their nominal coupon rate. Uh, it doesn't change as long as you have the bond. And so as inflation goes up and you're investment, your bond investment doesn't go up to match it. Actually, the bond prices will even drop. How do you address that with clients? The idea like, yes, my stocks are outpacing inflation. Bonds might be hurt, but we don't have the bonds for the return anyways, using it for the downside protection. Or I guess I'm curious how your conversation might be different than mine, if, if it is. It, it's just kind of a, a dance that the bonds and stocks play together, depending on what's going on in the in the market environment. So when things are in a normal situation, the bonds are providing you know just a low moderate return, and the stocks are doing most of the heavy lifting. However, there can be periods of market turbulence that cause the stocks to drop, and typically there these may be periods where the bonds do better. And often if you're in a phase where you're uh, decumulating assets and you're pulling money out, well, then the bonds would be where you can uh, target for liquidity if you need it. So they do have a benefit over these types of cycles. Now, when you throw in this other variable of inflation, well, yeah, a few things to keep in mind. When inflation goes up, uh, bond prices go down. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. But there could be many other periods where bond are where inflation is then on the receding end and then bond bonds are appreciating. So th there could be an ebb and flow of the actual prices of bonds where you get the appreciation or where you get a benefit or a de-benefit from bonds. But at the same time, bonds have an income stream, a coupon attached to them. And if you're using that coupon for income over X amount of years, then you can still get some benefit, even though you're experiencing um, a certain disruption for a certain period. Meaning if you look over cycles, bonds can still provide a benefit. And for example, looking at the, we did an episode on bonds. So I won't rehash um, all the details there, but the high level point there is over market cycles. And again, we keep stressing this with stocks as well. You gotta, if you think over many periods, things average out to provide a benefit. If you look at small periods, yeah, you're going to find periods where things aren't as ideal. But over long periods, bonds have done well. They've had about half the return of stocks, but far less of the downside. And these include, just like the stock returns did, periods of high inflation. So, you know, looking back at the past 10, um, 15 years or so, bonds did pretty good. You know, last year they did not great. 
But look at what not great means for bonds. For example, in 2021, bonds were down a percent and a half. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The worst inflation in 40 years and they dropped a percent and a half. Now, you know, what what was the upside for the previous five years? Well, plus 8%, plus 9%, flat, plus 4%, plus 3%. Okay, uh, that sounds like a good trade off to me, (laughs) you know, so it's one of those things where having the stocks and the bonds work together can give you something that's better than the sum of the parts. And the idea there is, you know, that this was what, you know, the the great discovery of Markowitz and his Nobel Prize, the idea where if you have just stocks on their own, you get a certain level of return and risk that um, may be acceptable. But if you have bonds on their own, you get a lower level of return and a lower level of risk. However, if you have a combination of stocks and bonds, you can actually get more return for less risk than you can with just stocks or just bonds alone. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really like is, and I'll explain this to clients, like, Sometimes simplifying just like the stocks are the driver of a return. The bonds provide that like risk adjusted return of the portfolio. And so as we're getting closer to a time frame, we can't weather a big downturn. We start to use bonds for their downside protection. And as we're going through withdrawals, the an all stock portfolio kind of the hardest thing if you had an all stock portfolio doing withdrawals is it drops 40%. You take out four percent and so now you are at kind of a negative 45 or negative 43 uh and then you need something like an 80 percent return just to get back to level so if it stays flat again you keep spending down your portfolio if it goes negative 40 then flat the next year you've been negative 44 and then you're spending uh four percent of your original portfolio so if you had $100,000 taking out a 4% withdrawal rate, that goes down to uh, 60000 Then you'd withdraw 4%. You're at 56. You withdraw 4% the next year at 52. You need to see that 52 double in the next year just to get back to where you were. Otherwise, you're going to be taking out you're not, your 4K withdrawal from 52000 is almost, a, what, uh, 12th of the portfolio or yeah. So an 8% withdrawal rate now, 7.6, 7.7. That's where withdrawal rate concerns come in and where the risk of using an all stock portfolio is it's like eventually it'll out, it'll come back up. We have this really good reversion to the mean and stock markets do a great job recovering over enough time. But if you're taking money out of the portfolio, you don't have enough in your pot to get that bounce back up. Even if you get a normal, like a bounce back of 30%, you're still only back up at 70 instead of getting back up to 100. And so that's where bonds help withdrawal rates. And there's a few other factors that I kind of explain to clients when we look at, again, if you're in accumulation phase, and that's why I use the example of someone younger than 50 in their 401k, they're all in stocks anyways. If we're closer but still saving into it, uh, if bonds do go down, actually there's a normal rebalancing factor, and especially if they're adding money to portfolio, we'll start to get the benefits of investing into things that are down. And so as they recover, we'll be benefiting that because we're not taking money out. So that's, I think there's, yeah, it's probably three realistic phases uh, when it comes to inflation. One, if you're investing in stocks, we're not worried at all. If you invest in bonds, maybe. But let's have a conversation like, okay, what is the actual concern? If it's still five to 10 years away from retirement before you start taking money out, this is actually a good time to kind of put money into bonds, either through rebalancing or just additional savings, and you'll start to recover. And then Again, because you still have 6% of your portfolio in stocks, where inflation uh, and inflation and stock returns do tend to correlate, so we're going to be f- just fine there. And so the only realistic risk, if you're worried about inflation and your bonds, is if you're actually taking money out to the portfolio. 
And what I usually point out here is safe withdrawal rate research actually does incorporate inflation. This is one of the fundamental assumptions in all the research that's come up with that 4% safe withdrawal rate. The, I believe the lowest time that if you were to retire and does, if you take out 4% of your initial portfolio does the last 30 years was not right before the Great Depression. So even though it was a big crash and very low returns, what actually helps is that there was very low inflation. In fact, there was some deflation during that time frame. You didn't have to increase your lifestyle expenses in terms of in nominal terms. And so you were able to take out just 4% each year and eventually uh, stock market came back up and, and you were participating. You still had enough money to participate in that upturn. But it was, I think, 1959 where less returns in the 60s and then inflation in the 70s that really killed portfolio returns in these types of studies. It was, the again, the inflation of the 70s that hurt safe withdrawal rate research. That situation did not come up in, during the Great Depression. And even... During the inflation of the 70s, 4% with safe withdrawal rates still survived 30 years. You go from 1959 to 1989, you still have money over those 30 years. So as I say, even in the worst case historical inflationary period, a 4% safe withdrawal rate still worked. And that's why we use that. It's not just did the stock market go down and come back up. And this is actually one of the kind of more recent studies of if someone retired in 1999, they saw their portfolio drop the first two years, it went back up and then dropped again in 2008. And so the first decade was basically flat. How did it impact? And, and this will kind of, it's still to be determined, but it looks like it's going to be just fine in part because the returns since 2009 have been so strong. Uh, so it looks like they're going to be just fine, but that's like even stock volatility doesn't seem to hurt safe withdrawal rates as much as inflation does. And so that's why that's why we've used Monte Carlo simulations that incorporate uh, stock and bond returns and inflation. But that's why we use those four percent withdrawal rates, where even if you are in a sixty forty portfolio. And we have a high inflation period, so you need to, the way the math works, you're increasing withdrawal to support the same lifestyle, a 4% safe withdrawal rate still works out. And it's things like another kind of upside, uh, it's less or so for people who are actually already retired, but things like your mortgage payment becomes cheaper. For all the same reasons that your bonds are hurt, the person who owns the mortgage and is lending the money their side is hurt and your mortgage payment at a fixed rate actually becomes cheaper. The, the mortgage payment stays exactly where it is, but if your income or other investments go up, it's now a lower percentage of your household income or household spending. So it's a variety of things like that, that in real life kind of applies to the individual, really not that big of a concern. Yeah, yeah, good good points, Aaron. You know, on, on the mortgage thing, I, I remember when I refinanced last year and I, I got something like 2.2% or something silly like that. I, I remember thinking that this might end up being the, the biggest free launch of, of my <laughs> life <laughs> because if inflation ends up being, you know, upwards of 2%, then I'm basically borrowing this money for free for the next 30 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, that that's one of those things. like you hear people, my like especially older generations like, oh, I should have bought a thirty year CD at fifteen percent in nineteen seventy five, and it's like, well, I understand why you think that because fifteen percent sounds like a good number, but stocks have actually done better than that. Uh, uh maybe not actually better than fifteen percent per year, but. Uh, maybe at least on a, uh, a nominal return, but like that, 
returns were or interest rates were really high because inflation was really high in that period. And it actually kind of gets to my my last point. I've had clients ask like, should we use things like tr- in, uh, inflation protected securities or other um, like tips or so treasury inflation protected securities or pretty sure called I bonds? Is that is that right? Um, yeah. Yep. Where they will design the interest rate to match inflation at the time. And like, yes, if you had one of these in 2021, you'll get a 7% rate of return. And that'll be better than other bond investments. But this actually gets to trying to predict when inflation will be a concern. Because, go back to what Trishel said, over a full cycle, over a long enough period, 10, 15 plus years, inflation-protected bonds tend to underperform regular fixed-rate bonds at similar risk levels. And so most of the planning that we do, we're going to take the higher-yielding but same risk bonds over the 10-year period, then trying to predict when inflation will be a concern and try to move from fixed-rate bonds to tips the year before inflation hits. Because the most likely thing that happens is that you keep missing and underperforming over a longer period. Right. Yeah. So when people hear about inflation, they are likely hear of all these fancy ways to try to get around having to deal with it, Um, like bandages or tactical plays that you can make. And it's something that we've reiterated from other contexts, but the, the high level notion is there, there's really no free lunch here, right? That if you want to come up with some sort of thing that you, sh- you could potentially do that um, can sidestep the inflation, there's always going to be something that you could have done, right? That you could have done, yes. <laughs> but w- whether there's something that you can do that will work consistently well, if there was a magic silver bullet, then all of this investment stuff would be way too easy. <laughs> now that you know that there's something that does work over cycles, you know that, that those last two words are are critical. You know, the notion is if you stick with it through the good and the bad and the ugly, then you will come out ahead. However, it's very hard to get the good without the bad and the ugly. Yeah, it's. And like I, like I said at the beginning, kind of new. Okay, if we have a good plan in place, we know why we're invested and our time frame. Inflation, again, if you're younger, all stocks, stocks are going to outpace inflation. If you are getting closer and inflation hurts your bonds, but you're, you're still saving money, either rebalancing or adding money will help your situation. If you're in a withdrawal rate situation, one, we still have stocks in the portfolio. That's continuing at pace. But also, we've this is has survived already. This is why we don't take out 5 or 6% each year, even if we're averaging 8% per year. Like This is why we have that, that lower withdrawal rate, is so that we still can weather things like this. And this would actually be an example of... If you wanted to have a higher withdrawal rate, so so I've I talked with clients like a five percent withdrawal rate over a thirty year time frame is manageable. It means that we have to be willing to make adjustments depending on kind of investment and economic outcomes. This would be an example where if you were taking a five percent withdrawal, we'd actually probably keep the same withdrawal next year. And so while you might not feel the difference, realistically, you, you're kind of taking about a 2% pay cut, or maybe like, a, I guess, probably like a 7% pay cut, uh, where the things that you can purchase is a 7% reduction because of inflation, and we haven't increased your withdrawal from your portfolio. That would be an example of how a 5% inflation can survive longer and be manageable where we're not increasing your withdrawal rate. And so you get the same level fixed income from your 
variable portfolio, but your technically your lifestyle expenses have gone down because we haven't increased them with inflation. And that, that's kind of how a, uh, a slightly higher withdrawal rate would be manageable. Um, any 4% withdrawal rate research assumes that we're going to increase your withdrawals each year to maintain your lifestyle and keep pace with inflation. But if you just don't increase your withdrawals, you're kind of taking care of reducing your lifestyle expenses by 7% or whatever the inverse of 1.07 is. Does that, does that make sense? Did I explain that well? Yeah, yeah. Good, good points, Aaron. I agree. So mm-hmm. a- anything else you want to uh, quickly mention before? I, I have a question completely out of left field related to inflation that – a client asked that I couldn't quite answer, but it, it was it was it was inconsequential enough. But it was a, it was a good thought experiment. But I want to like let you anything else that you want to add before we get to that. Uh, now now I'm intrigued. Go go for it, Aaron. Okay, so this client again, he's uh, in his 30s, has uh, his 401k invested all in stocks. It's uh, as we just discussed in the past. It's roughly 60% U.S. stocks, 40% international. Got some small cap emerging markets in there, but 60 U.S., 40% international. If inflation is mostly in the U.S., and this actually kind of gets back to the Big Mac index idea, could or should we make any adjustments to that 60-40 allocation? Or like, do you have a guess what might the impact of inflation in the U.S. be on that 60-40 mix? Because it's not 60% stocks, 40% bonds. It's 60 U.S., 40 international. Would you guess U.S. stocks outperform because they tend to correlate with the higher inflation? Is the U.S. dollar weakening against international currencies mean that international stocks might do better if there's U.S. inflation? Will Are we in such a global economy that U.S. inflation will kind of spread throughout the rest of the world? Like, I couldn't think of how the inf- how inflation in the U.S. would impact U.S. versus international stocks, and so I'm really curious to get your thoughts. Right. So, if if my memory and on the fly math serves me correctly, I, I believe a devaluing dollar would help your foreign investments if they are like an ADR, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that case, so really quick, uh, ADR is like an American depository seat. It allows you to buy stocks of international companies, even though you don't live in that country. Right. Yeah. So it, you know, in that case, there there may be some some benefit, but again, how fancy do you want to get here? Right. Because again, <laughs> so, you try to. So honestly, first thing I said is like, okay, as I start thinking about this. It's getting so complex so fast that the answer is going to be no. We're not going to change your sixty forty mix of U.S. and international. Like that's it. I actually told the client. <laughs> so now, given that context, sure. How deep can we go? Well, see in that three that, minutes. That's just it, though. It's such a cat and mouse game because you have to make all of these predictions and then come up with a model and then discount it back to the dollar and then figure out the net present value. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bother because professionals try to do that, right? And then they guess wrong. And then it just makes all of that worthless. So realistically, in addition to like, we're not going to do anything is also, okay, I don't know which U.S. or international can outperform based on U.S. inflation, which is actually the entire point of having both that whichever one does better, we're going to sell and rebalance into the other one. That's exactly yeah. why we have both and why we do rebalancing. Right. Yeah. So it, given it, all that, that like, we're not going to do anything, going to use rebalancing, going to use like the old boring financial planning, having a plan in place. Okay. Now, which one does better, international or U.S.? And why? I don't know, is my <laughs> response. I have no idea. <laughs> 
you know, you have to take into account the, the multiples, the expansion of the economies, the interest rates, the currency rates. Oh, boy. <laughs> you can create a whole model for this if you really want. You know, you can come up with an econometric model to, to forecast the entire planet. And you, you'll have, you know, a thousand variables. And then we'll come back to the saying, you know, you, you give me four variables and I can create a model that'll fit an elephant. And you give me one more and I can make its tail wag on command. Well, here you're talking about dozens of variables. And I, I'd say, you know, it, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, NASA uses um, like 14 digits of pi only, right? Even though we oh. know millions of digits for all of their their space operations. And you only need something like 25 digits of pi to come up with a circle with the radius of the entire universe. I, I was not aware of that, but that makes sense. So, you know, just having all that more data isn't really going to lead to precision in my mind. I completely agree. I still want you to, like, I, I guess, uh, I, I guess I'm trying to think of, because I know you have more experience with this than I do. Is there another factor or variable I I'm not aware of that might be them. Like those, I mentioned the few that that come to mind. Of like, I I'm guessing U.S. stocks do better nominally, but U.S. dollar weakening against against uh, international currencies or international currencies strengthening against U.S. dollar might imply that those would do better. And that's again a part of the reason why we do invest in international stocks and not just domestic stocks. But I, I guess I was trying to think of like, will would currency outweigh globalization. I guess I, I think that's that's what I'm trying to get. I'm trying to think of like this like scale of impact, not just uh um like truly much like this could do better than the other, but it's like uh I remember I think there's a phrase if you might correctly like um the stock market is like a dog on a leash, but the economy is the person walking down the street holding the leash. Where it kind of like is like the stock market is going to move in the direction of the economy, but it's like moving up and back and forth so much. But the as long as the economy is moving in the same direction, the market eventually gets there. Just a very very bouncy path. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, okay, so the th thing one, um, everything's so intertwined, right? So you just looking at some postcasting here, for example, I looked at inflation in 2021 in other countries around the world. And I'll just, I have a whole list here, and I won't read off every country. But for example, Canada, 5%. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to skip over China. I don't know if that's true or not. But, <laughs> uh, Germany, you know, five percent. Wait, 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 sorry, wait. Did China's GDP grow by exactly ten percent? <laughs> well, okay, so inflation was one point four percent. So okay. th I'm, I'm skipping over that because they control their currency, and who knows about the the growth in the uh, the yeah. actual prices? Okay, so um, Mexico seven percent, Luxembourg four percent. I'm looking for United Kingdom. Where is that? Anyway, U.S. seven percent, Estonia twelve percent. Anyway, um, get some Portugal or Poland eight percent, Portugal two percent. Anyway, so it seems like a good amount of inflation all around, higher than normal. Uh, definitely, probably similar circumstances. You know that that led mm -hmm. to this. But, you know, at the same time, U.S. economy um, or the U.S. market, for example, did better than international last year. Okay. So, but I, I okay. So, so it seems, so, so I guess even maybe the uh, U.S., it's not a U.S. inflation seven, the rest of the world at one. It's like they're having similar higher than normal inflations, some higher, but most seem to be little lower maybe because they just didn't print as much money as as the u.s did or other could be any other three or four variables uh so it's not yeah I, there's like yeah. a two percent differential yeah yeah between your so maybe 
maybe if that's the case, then the currency, the currency difference isn't going to be that big. It'll still come down to kind of like, are their economies doing well kind of thing? Yeah. So for, for last year, I, the bigger parameter was the the performance of the, the local economies. So U.S. did better. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank thank you for for entertaining me with uh, a, a difficult thought exercise. That again, we're not going to do anything. Right. Well, it, it's interesting how we do come full circle to the. Um, we've thought about a million things, but we're still going to stick to what we think um, makes the most sense based upon the plan that we came up with. That factored in all these things that we've yeah. discussed, you know, from the beginning. But that that's kind of how this works, right? Hopefully, we you know the the plan that we came with uh, had the analysis that dealt with these types of concerns. That that's hopefully what we should expect. Yep, yep, I agree. And I, I'd be curious if anyone listening wants to share a story of have they been directly impacted by inflation? Like, the, like so much of it's like at a weird macro level, but it's. I'm really curious. Does anyone have an example of yes, inflation negatively impacted me because of this, and especially in 2021? So I'd be curious if anyone has a story to share. Yeah, and you know the, the good stuff, Aaron. I enjoyed the conversation, and thanks everybody for listening. If you're enjoying the conversations, do spread the word. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical as no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested directly. Have a nice day.